Hello, and welcome to the History Twins Podcast. I'm Tristan Kaplan. And I'm Aiden Kaplan. We're here today at the University of Chicago interviewing political historian Clifford Ando. Ando, Ando is a professor specializing in Roman law and religion. His best-known work is Imperial Ideology, Provincial Loyalty in the Roman Empire, which tries to explain the Roman Empire's longevity. Ando's main work on Roman religion is his The Mather of the Gods, which contrasts Christianity and paganism in the Roman Empire. Professor Ando, you're well recognized for your innovative approach towards analyzing the fall of the Roman Empire, so we'll begin with that. So what's the standard view on the collapse of the Roman Empire, and what's wrong with it? I suppose there are probably, it'd probably be fair to say that there are many standard views. Um, rather famously, a German historian named Alexander Daymont wrote a book which was nothing more than a catalog and analysis of um, of, his, of reasons that other people had given for the fall of the Roman Empire. And the book runs to several hundred pages. Um, uh, but if I had to single out a, a small number of items, I would say that they tend to focus on things like uh, foreign invasion um, or economic weakness or manpower decline, things like this. Um, and uh, uh, if, if I have a difficulty with them, it's that... Um, they are, they are generally too simplistic. They're monocausal. Um, the Roman Empire was a large and complicated phenomenon, and its fall deserves a large and complicated answer. All right. What's the biggest difference between your imperial ideology and provincial loyalty in the Roman Empire and other books explaining the collapse of the Roman Empire? Uh, I suppose, actually, um, uh, the, the, the quickest answer is that the book wasn't on the face of it, an attempt to explain collapse, but uh, uh, to explain longevity. Um, you know, there, there is a flip side to the answer I just gave, uh, uh, is that um, there were a lot of ancient empires, um, and uh, none of them are around today. Empires come into being and they fall. Uh, among similar political formations, the Roman Empire lasted a tremendously long time. And it seemed to me that amidst a very substantial literature on precisely decline and fall, or collapse as you put it, um, that uh, perhaps the phenomenon of longevity deserved its own its own inquiry and its own explanation. All right, so you, you think it would be accurate to characterize yourself as a historian who looks not at why the Roman Empire collapsed, but why it lasted so long. Would you say that that's an accurate statement of how you differ from other historians? Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Um, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to explain, and it's not an easy thing to write about. Um, uh, stories of decline and fall and collapse have their own kind of narrative. You kind of know where they begin when everything is going well, and you kind of know where they end when something like the, the state has gone out of existence. Um, describing the coming into being of uh, stability describing something's coming into being and describing the moment when it looks like it might last is actually a kind of um, is a hard thing to narrate in an exciting way. To what extent do you see the Byzantine Empire as a continuation of its ancient predecessor? Ah, uh, that's an excellent question. I suppose the quick answer is that I am among a number of contemporary historians who think the Byzantine Empire uh, should be understood um, as it saw itself, as a, as a successor, and as, largely as a continuer, continuator of the Roman Empire. Um, 
it's a it's not a traditional position, as I'm sure you know. After all, we call it the Byzantine Empire, not the Roman Empire, because we tend to differentiate it. Sure. Well, yeah, it had like half the land area of the Roman Empire tops, right? So just by that, it's incredibly different. It's much, much more Greek in culture versus Latin. Two big differences. Yeah. Uh, uh, those are uh, entirely true statements. Um, I suppose here's a kind of... Uh, Here's a, a, a way of pushing back, or at least a, a way of charting out the terrain of a conversation about it. Um, the Roman Empire was relatively unusual among, say, peer political forms in that its dominant, its, 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 its power elite um, was essentially bilingual. Or perhaps not that every individual is bilingual, but there were two major languages of communication, which is not something you could say of the Spanish Empire and not something you'd say of uh, Han period China or something like this. So that made it unusual. Um, uh, uh, and another is that bef even before the collapse, um, the Roman Empire had created a variety of systems for the division of um, something like both political authority and administrative practice between two different capitals. Um, you know, the the... The result of something like the split and collapse of the Western half, leaving only, as you say, uh, a much smaller territory and uh, a, a dominant class speaking a very different language from the moment at the beginning, makes it um, makes it different than the trajectory of other states. But I'm not sure that that justifies our looking at them. And you know, when when the Byzantines say we're Roman, and I'm not sure it justifies our saying, "Oh no, you're not." So back to the collapse of the Roman Empire. Sure. So what was the most important factor for its fall? This is obviously a very sure. good question. Um, I suppose... Uh, well, um, this is... Um, my, my inclination is to push back ever so slightly and give more than one. But so, I'll give one for now. Sir? Um, um, it probably is the growing um, sophistication of... Uh, the enemies beyond the frontier. And by growing sophistication, I'll make a further claim or an explanation. Um, it is, I'm not claiming that one day the Romans fought the Germans and the next day they fought the Goths and the third day they fought the Huns. And as these new people arrived, each of them brought something like a different skill set so that the Romans could have continued beating the Germans, but would have always failed against the Huns or something. Um, I think long-lived long lived relations of antagonism between parties, and for that matter, long-term relations of contact, um, gradually bring into being kind of relations of similarity. That is, both, um, both getting along with another party and, for that matter, antagonizing, relations of antagonism, tend to produce... Um, increasing forms of sophistication and, 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 and imitation um, yeah, so, so between the, the stronger party and the weaker one. Yeah. So I think that Rome's enemies were becoming more like Rome yeah, and more right. capable of resisting and it. Therefore, it. dangerous animals. Yes, yeah. exactly. So a lot of historians have highlighted the role of disease uh, in the collapse of the Roman Empire. To what extent do you think that epidemics were a large cause of the decline? I'll expand and say uh, epidemics were an important part, and I actually also think that um, just manpower crises. Uh, so um, the 
the plagues of the second and sixth century were terribly important, and there's been some really excellent new work in this field on something like the history of demography and disease regimes. And I actually think that truly significant military disasters like the Battle of Adrianople towards the end of the fourth century were actually significant. In, you know, the the ability of ancient populations to generate new manpower quickly was very limited. These were serious problems. Absolutely. All right, so let's try breaking this down a little. You address a lot of factors, obviously, which increase loyalty to the Roman Empire in your book. But uh, why don't we just start with laws, a subject which you're an expert on, correct? Sure. Yes. So could you explain Roman citizenship and why it was so important? Um, I can try. Uh, the quick answer... Um, a quick answer is that um, citizenship as a kind of token of political belonging was long used or certainly long understood by the Romans to be an axis of difference. The empire was more or less composed of some people who were Romans and other peoples who were not. And the people who were Romans were in charge and the people who were not were... Um, uh, Subject, um, and this brought, as, as virtually everyone knows, if only because of the Book of Acts, uh, right? This brought certain kinds of protections and privileges. Um, and for extraordinarily complicated historical reasons, the, the Romans were one of the a tiny number of ancient populations that, for various reasons and under quite specific circumstances, gave Roman citizenship away. Um, this was unusual in ancient empires and was even unusual just in ancient states. Yeah. Um, and the Roman citizenship was important because um, people within the empire appear to have understood that the gradual spread of Roman citizenship amounted to a process of substantial political change, that people who were once subject were being invited to join something like the privileged and ruling class. Yeah. So it was um, often given as a reward, correct? Yes. Um, and uh, this, this, this was part and parcel of a complicated set of relationships that, um, you know, that, that helped to break down natural sites, shall we say, of resistance um, and produce something like greater political unity. So why was Roman citizenship so important in the late 4th century? As you mentioned, you had like the Battle of Adrianople with Goths fighting to become part of the Roman Empire. Why was it so? Why, why was citizenship such a great motivation that they would be willing to go to war and lay their lives on the line simply for the, simply for the purpose of becoming citizens of the empire? Um, the situation in the 4th century was somewhat different than it had been earlier for at least two reasons. Um, one is uh, that in the year 212 CE, um, actually for complicated reasons that it's hard now to figure out because relatively small amounts of exactly contemporary documentation survives, the Emperor Caracalla gave away citizenship universally to something like all freeborn residents of the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and something like a new form of state came into being because there ceased to be Romans who ruled over others and everyone inside the Roman Empire who was free was Roman. And what exactly the consequences of that were, were, were are, are complicated to suss out. But I'll simply say that right, 
before the arrival of new people meant that some people coming from outside were essentially potentially joining a group of subjects. Um, now, somebody coming from outside was joining a population that was internally something like homogeneous. There were no longer a kind of obvious subject status for them to join. Um, uh, what, you know, the, and because the people inside the empire were kind of universally Roman, um, there was a, you know, a, a lack of a readily available framework for integrating large quantities of new people, except essentially as citizens or slaves. Now, the, the Romans didn't make the choice to make them slaves. Um, they couldn't have enslaved voluntary immigrants, uh, immigrants, and they, um, but they didn't want to give them citizenship either. Um, and this produced, this meant that immigration in the late, later empire was a, a new and puzzling phenomenon. Um, the Goths and other parties wanted to enter, um, uh, and uh, the Romans wanted to keep them second class. Um, yeah, and for various reasons, this produced, as you can imagine, all sorts of political friction. Sure. So why did the Romans want to keep the Goths second class? Especially once it starts leading to all-out war, then you might think they would just give it to the Goths to appease them and actually integrate them into their army and make them great soldiers, as they as they did historically. Yes. Um, you might have thought they would wise up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a uniform tale of poor policy and bad decisions. Um, and the Romans did seek, in some cases, to exploit uh, the new immigrant populations, by which I mean, of course, the adult males of, of these populations for military service. Um, I, can, I can't offer a much better explanation than that an awful lot of human political populations turn out to be resistant. Right. Um, to incorporating mass um, mass arrivals of, of immigrants, yeah. um, the, 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 there was you know there were various ways in which they were perceived as different, and that 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 difference or that perception of difference produced political resistance. Yeah. So, so we tend to think of ancient empires as being much more able to absorb immigrants. Sure. Uh, the Roman Empire, I'd say, is a great example of an empire which basically relied on foreigners to do almost all the administrating, most of the fighting, stuff like that. Uh, but the main thing here is just that the Roman Empire seems to, with the Goths, turn a blind eye to past history. Is this just due to increasing nationalism, say? Or, like, can you look at the documents and say, all right, this is a point where, like, the Romans are starting to become more aggressively anti-immigrant? Uh, that's a really fascinating question. Um, and I'm not, I, I can't give you anything other than an interpretive answer. Right? This is not something that the Romans sat down and analyzed themselves. So I'll give you a two-part answer. As you can probably already sense, I'm not good at giving short answers, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to give this one quickly. One, um... The Romans themselves in the 4th century, there were voices who were aware that their practice, the practice then was different from what had happened before. Um, there were people still in the 4th century, it is not uniform, there were people still in the 4th century who said, guys, hang on. We flourished in the past of the incorporation of outsiders. We should be incorporating outsiders now. So I, I don't want to give you the impression that all Romans yeah, were against 
uh, and the second is um, ancient empires. I, I, I hesitate to say that they were they always incorporated immigrants. What ancient empires were good at was was managing heterogeneity. So there were lots of different population groups inside, speaking different languages, different cultures, and so forth. And it's not so much a matter of incorporating outsiders as managing the difference that they did have. Um, and one thing that happened in the aftermath of the grant of universal grant of citizenship is the salient forms of difference inside diminished. They were they, they conceived of themselves internally as more more homogeneous rather than heterogeneous, and that that may have contributed to making it harder for them to incorporate new people. You cite the common practice of adoption among Roman emperors as a clever method of designated skilled successors, <laughs> but in the history of the Roman Empire, adoption often leads to catastrophes, with uh, Tiberius's designation of Caligula sure. or Claudius's designation of Nero being the primary examples. So did adoption on average still lead to a more stable government in your view? Yeah, so obviously we yeah. have the five good emperors, classic sure, example right. of the five great adopted emperors, but yeah, sure. we'll just yeah, so leave that out there. Um... Golly, uh, adoption was a way of signaling who the next emperor was to be, um, and of trying to endow that person with legitimacy. Um, that was one method they had. They, there were several, and they tended to use them all clustered together. There was like a whole set of practices. Um, uh, but... The problem with the Caligula and Nero examples is that it is not the case that Tiberius or Claudius looked over, you know, they, they handed out an SAT test yeah, and sure. chose the guy with the highest score, right? <laughs> the um, Caligula and Nero were something like the closest adult male in their, let us, shall we say, extended family. You know, they would say. In the case of Claudius, he actually yeah. had a son, correct? <laughs> right? Um, yes. yes, you might think that he would just choose his own son. Continue. Right, but, you know, dynastic succession in these giant, shall we say, royal houses is always a complicated thing. Look sure. at early modern history. Look at the Habsburgs in the, in the 18th and 19th century. It's always so, tricky, of course. Yeah. Um, so the, there's a difference between using adoption to, to make a claim between an older male ruler and a younger male, like Augustus and Tiberius, who were legally related but not directly father and son. There's a difference between that and, you know, a case of Nerva adopting Trajan, where there was no blood connection whatsoever. And their adoption, adoption was on the one hand more artificial, um, because there was no relation, and it was, they were both adults, um, but also much more clearly successful. It was it was a it was a it was a method of making of drawing a symbolic connection. Um, it's not the same thing as uh, not the same thing as saying they had good criteria of selection. So you're you're absolutely right um, that that it, it it is not a guarantee of success. Yeah. All right. So what you uh, seem to think very highly of Roman law in general, I would say. Um, so let me just ask, how biased were Roman tribunal courts in making their rulings in general, and how fairly do you think they administered justice? <laughs> Obviously a big question, but yeah, try to give you, I'm sure you've read tons of primary documents, so you, yes. can, you can give us, like, your, what's the average quality of these rulings? 
they seem on the whole to have worked extremely hard um, to to apply their own rules well. Um, uh, I could justify this by reference to two things. One, there was very great demand, actually. Sure. Um, uh, one th- we have a certain amount of documentation early in the Roman period for there being in the same kind of territorial space, both Roman courts and, shall we say, indigenous courts, local courts. Um, and uh, over time, the number of users of local or indigenous courts appears to go down. People preferentially use Roman tribunals. Many possible reasons for this. We have no way of knowing. No, we, we, we have no note where somebody left a post-it note on the refrigerator and said, you know, honey, I'm going to be at the Roman court today because I think it's fair, right? But we have a pattern of usage, and we have to explain it. Um, the other thing is that, um, um, so one is we have this pattern of usage, and the other is we have a certain amount of internal documentation by which the Romans discuss principles of, um, of judging. And we have documents in which people make appeals to Roman courts in which they essentially use similar language. So the Romans say to themselves, oh, it's terribly important when judging um, not to give preference, preference or preferential power to, the, to those who are rich or those who are socially powerful. And then we have an awful lot of petitions in which people approach Roman courts and say, remember, you're not supposed to give preference to the powerful. So that there was a kind of, there was a common set of principles and a common language for arguing about what good judging looked like. All right, let's switch over to propaganda. What were the most common forms of propaganda which the Roman Empire widely distributed to its many subjects? At a material level, the most common form were surely coins. Coins. And we could call them, I'll say other things, but the most, you asked about the most common, and the most common was probably coins. Um, And one can make reference to coins because unlike contemporary states, in which the, the language on the coin and its image are terribly stable across time, um, the Romans minted new coins with, uh, you know, new legends, new words on them, mm-hmm. on a terribly regular basis. So that uh, if the emperor won a big battle, um, he could print a coin depicting, let us say, a defeated German with a title that announced himself as, you know, um, Caesar Augustus, conqueror of the Germans. Yeah. And that would flood the market. You know, much more rapidly, say that, you know, much more rapidly than any other form of communication could, and get into the, literally into the hands of many more people. Yeah. Well, if I have a coin and on the back of it it says so and so is great, I don't automatically tend to say, all right, well, so and so is great, the coin says so, the coin can't lie, can it? So do you think that these coins are actually effective or? You don't, you don't mean to say that government sources lie. That would be a terrible thing. Um, no, the, uh, no, there is no particular reason to believe that everyone took the claims of coinage or the claims of a victory yeah. announcement. So I mean, you could easily believe F-A-5. that the claim of victory is true, but you could still say, yeah, lousy Romans, and uh, all right, I'll use their coins, but I still don't like them that much. Yes. Yeah. No, um, proving the effectiveness of propaganda and, you know, it's, it's like, Frankly, um, the difficulty of proving the reception of propaganda in a in the pre-modern world, yeah. um, 
uh, every step of these arguments is contestable. Can you show that people looked at coins? Can you show that they read the coins? Can you, in regard to kind of other forms of announcements, can you show that anyone listened? Um, can you show that they believed it? Yeah. And uh, the answer is that each one of these steps is extraordinarily difficult. And, you know, that's why, you know, certain forms of, um, certain forms of ancient history um, have very traditional forms because uh, there are certain kinds of canonical questions you ask in ancient history, and they tend to have canonical answers. Um, it's not to say they're not complicated, um, but, but more elaborate forms of political history invite kind of methodological problems which are very difficult to resolve. So I, I, I concede yeah. uh, the, 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 the coin problem is one in a very, you know, in, among a, an array of, of tons of, yeah, of tough ones, tough stuff to crack. Yes. Of propaganda, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it sounds to me like propaganda would be better with pictures when most of the Roman subjects couldn't uh, read or illiterate. So you think or pictures were bigger, bad. pictures bigger than words? Pictures were a terribly important part of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, pictures which came in many forms, uh, distributed relief sculptures. We also have reference to the use of um, uh, painted wooden, painted sheets of wood and painted boards, um, essentially painted canvases in parades, something like a modern-day float. Um, uh, uh, ceremonials, just parades in themselves, were important by way of illustrating things. Um, there were many, many media of communication. Um, including the oral distribution of information. Um, the, um, uh, you know, you might, you could easily be skeptical about propaganda by making reference, one, to low levels of literacy, and to two, the diversity of languages. Um, uh, but there is some reason to believe that the Romans took some trouble to encourage, one, the oral announcement of information, including, say, the announcement of new laws, um, and two, that under certain circumstances, they would take some trouble to have the information translated and made available in the local language. Again, um, that we know this happens sometimes, uh, it's difficult to generalize and say we know it happened all the time. But but those are those are claims we can make that get us partway towards an answer, towards the very difficult questions you raise. You argue that the Roman Emperor was widely recognized throughout the Roman Empire thanks to the propaganda efforts. However, when you look at the non-natural death rate of Roman emperors, it seems exceptionally high. Uh, so from 14 to 395 AD, more Roman emperors were clearly assassinated, 23 that died from natural causes, 20. Uh, so how is it that despite the exceedingly short reigns of many of these emperors, uh, the emperor himself remained such a well-known figure? And when a Roman emperor died, how long would it take before a successor was more widely recognized than his predecessor? Um... I'll answer your question directly first, and then I'll qualify it. The quick answer is um, that we know the Romans took some trouble to distribute new portraits of the emperor very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, here, just to cite you know, one kind of information, um, we uh, people have measured the amount of time that passed between the coming to existence of a new emperor as best as we can date it, 
and the first appearance of that emperor being described as emperor in papyri from Egypt, mm-hmm. in the ephemeral documents that survive from Egypt. And um, that happens with astonishingly regular speed. Um, uh, likewise, we have some sense of the kinds of mechanisms they use for the distribution of portraits. That is, uh, uh, like, like spreading coins, but actual statuary as well. Of, um, so that you would trade in your you would trade in your dollar bill with um, Donald Trump's name on it and acquire a, a, a dollar bill with his successor. Although, of course, in the United States, because the portraiture on our money is stable, what changes is something that very people, few people look at, which is the signature of the Secretary of the Treasury. Sure, yeah, so but, you, but you know, but um, uh, the, if you're the Secretary of the Treasury, they often they often they themselves are very happy when they get dollar bills. And maybe their relatives are very excited when the dollar bill starts to have their name on it. So that's one thing. But I would say that I'm, 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 an equally complicated and perhaps ultimately more important problem is not that people knew the identity of the specific emperor, but that they, they had a sense of the, the wider structure of the empire as such, and that there was an emperor and that certain emperors guaranteed the functioning of government. And here's a complicated Example of what I mean. It was a crazy moment in the third century. Um, yep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing was kind of crazy, right? But there was a you know there was a sort of complicated moment when I don't know, basically for various reasons having to do with revolt and military upheaval and the failure of lines of communication, um, the people of Egypt pretty much understood themselves to be part of the Roman Empire, but had not yet been told who the magistrates of the year were the so-called consuls, who gave their name to the year. So the, the Romans would say not in the year 278, they would say in the year when, you know, Cliff and Aiden were consuls. Sure. Um, and uh, we have a set of documents that were clearly written in Egypt when they had a calendar. They knew it was, you know, let's say, you know, March 15th, they knew it was a new year and that there should be new consuls and somehow, you know, the the cable service had gone out and they had no way of knowing it was. Um, and uh, we have a set of documents in which they say basically, um, you know, in the year in which, and they just left blank spaces or they wrote fill in names, like in, in, in the year in which parentheses name of console to be filled in later. And then they just kept going. Um, and they, they essentially wrote contracts in which they continued to carry on social life in the absence of the information of what the hell year is it? Um, but the fact that they said, we're just going to go back and fill in the name of the consuls later, meant that they knew that somewhere out there in the world, even if they didn't know the name, somewhere out there in the world, the institutions were grinding on, and eventually the news would get to them, and they would go backfill this information, so that it was possible for kind of stable social life to continue, despite what we might regard as bizarrely serious ruptures. And it depended not on the specific individuals, but on the kind of their faith in the institutions. All right. Okay, so now for religion. Another very fun topic. Mm-hmm. So from your imperial ideology and provincial loyalty in the Roman Empire, quote, the slow insinuation of prayers for the emperor developed into municipal ceremonies, like the gradual insinuation of the emperor into multiple pantheons of Mediterranean paganism, suggested that the stability of local institutions and the mechanisms of daily life depended upon individual loyalty to the imperial government, unquote. Does this mean that paganism on average strengthened individual loyalty to the Roman Empire? 
Yes, that's part of what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. That the the from what we can tell, the structures of the varieties of Mediterranean paganism um, made it possible for people often to continue local forms of religious life as they had before the Romans came along, or in evolving forms under Roman rule, but to continue something like religious traditions and simultaneously to use those traditions um, to negotiate, mediate, whatever, um, their relationship to the empire. So that on the one hand, um, their local religion could be seen as somehow harmonious with the empire and also the empire with the local tradition, that the two help to stabilize each other. So in your imperial ideology book, uh, you do make reference to Edward Gibbon's thesis that Christianity caused the demise of the Roman Empire, but also but also uh, accuse him of not looking enough at why the Roman Empire lasted so long, uh, instead of simply focusing on its decline. So would you, would you say it's ultimately fair that you do agree with Edward Gibbon, at least, that Christianity was one of the factors in the fall of the Roman Empire? Oh, uh, actually, I, I think Gibbon's argument is actually somewhat different. Sure, sure. But so right. maybe, maybe that Christianity caused the fall mm. for different reasons. But the, like if it, Christianity weakened imperial loyalty uh, because it replaced paganism. Yeah. Um, I think what Gibbon ends up arguing is that um, Christianity was in harmony with complicated social changes that were already taking place. Um, That it was a religion suited to the culture. That the reason why the empire became Christian when it did is because, in essence, they were on converging tracks. So the two succeeded or fell together as political cultures. Which is not to say that Christianity obviously didn't live on as a religion. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Um... so I, I, I qualified the I qualified the description about what Gibbon claims. Um, does Christianity contribute to the fall of the empire, um, or contribute to uh, a decline in loyalty? That's a, a, a an exceedingly complicated question. The quick answer is not not immediately. What it enables, which is not the same thing as saying it helped the fall, what it enables is the continuation of some of the structures of social life um, even after political institutions had collapsed. Um, it may be. That's a, the complicated claim of whether people were willing to allow Rome to fall or wept a little bit less when Rome fell because they were Christian is something that contemporaries worried about. But I'm not sure we have the capacity now to go back and in a, in a really robust way. Alright. So, measured by how long would last would the Roman Empire have been better off had it stayed pagan, or? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's at least possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a, puzzle about, a puzzle about the later Roman Empire 
and I can describe it without being able to solve the problem, is that um, the Roman Empire, as a political culture, um, had operated for a very long time in part by being internally diverse. And that meant that there was a complex set of networks or feedback loops or you can choose your kind of metaphorical apparatus in which um, certain kinds of belief structures um, operated in harmony with and sort of supported each other. There was potentially intention, because of course there were obviously religious groups that not continuously, but would sometimes get upset. That is, there were there were conflicts in the Roman Empire, and religion could be a site conflict. I don't know. Um, but one trajectory of the Roman Empire as a political culture, to come back to the start of our conversation today, right? One trajectory of Roman political culture between, let us say, the year one and the year four hundred, is that certain kinds of internal difference got ironed out. They got rid of alternative forms of citizenship. Um, a certain number of internal linguistic differences disappeared as local languages disappeared in favor of Greek and Latin. A certain kind of religious difference disappeared and so forth. Um, and one question is, um, uh, did... I could, I could use complicated modern sociological language to, to describe this, but I'll just make this simple claim. Um, did this insistence on internal sameness in a variety of ways, if not insistence, did the gradual production of sameness produce a more fragile political culture? Of which Christianity would then be one part of a, of a trend across many areas towards sameness. And maybe that turns out to be more fragile, particularly in, an, in a pre-modern state. Sir. All right, so you state in your The Matter of Gods, in contrast to Christians who had faith, the Romans had knowledge, and their knowledge was empirical and an orientation. Mm. What made Roman paganism more empirical? Does this mean that the success of Christianity destroyed or heavily weakened the previous empirically minded attitude of Roman culture? If so, was this good or bad for the long term survival of the Roman Empire? Uh, what made it empirical? Um, two things made Roman religion empirical. One, um, a lot of Roman religious action was oriented towards um, uh, gauging the likely success or failure of um, fairly immediate forms of social action. Uh, awful lot of Roman prayers were formally um, uh, uh, attended to the success or failure of an action you might take that day or that week or that month or that year. Um, I could try to cash this out, but uh, one way to put it would be there was a certain kind of Roman, just as one example, there was a certain kind of actions the Romans took before they took state action in which they asked the gods, um, should I do A or not? Should I do B or not? And the answer you got from the gods was good for a day. So, you, in a way, it was a perfectly trivial ceremony because if you didn't get the answer you liked, you just, if you didn't get the answer you liked on Monday, you'd ask on Tuesday, and you could ask on Wednesday until you got the answer you wanted, then you could do whatever the hell you wanted in the first place. So, in a way, you could trivialize the whole thing as a little bit silly. Mm -hmm. And probably some aspects of it were frankly ridiculous. <laughs> um, but, 
Um, one consequence of how the Romans approached this process of question asking was that they tended to keep track of answers. Now, they worried sometimes. You know, they would think they got an answer saying, you know, you know to the magistrate, you know, to Rama Manuel as mayor of Chicago. By all means, attack Gary, Indiana today. So they'd march off to war against Gary, Gary Indiana, and they get their ass kicked. And then they have to ask themselves a question. Not likely, but let's say Gary, Indiana beat Chicago. Then you have to ask yourself a question. Were the gods wrong? Did we interpret the answer incorrectly? Right? There are a bunch of questions you can ask about after the failure of a mechanism like that. Sure. And every now and then the Romans would then say, you know what? I think, I think the way in which we ask the question is wrong. We need to revise our basic religious rituals to get a different sort of answer. So the reason I say I've said it was empirical is it, one is that the Romans themselves and Christians in dialogue tended to describe the one knowledge as being oriented towards getting the correct answer, and the other one as being oriented towards something like belief in things. So one is organized around knowledge, and the other organized around belief. But the other reason is that if you really, if you're, if you can imagine, like in any empirical system, like in a modern science, like in an experimental science, if you produce right, if if repeated, iterated action produces a certain kind of answer, then you go back and you do something else. Sir, that's the whole point of scientific experiment. And there's a there's a there's a set of ancient religions. Romans is not the only one which appear to have operated in this kind of form. There's some very good analyses of these. Mine's not the only one. And uh, what about just the long term survival of Western civilization? Uh, to what extent was this uh, the empirically minded attitude of paganism being wiped out bad for Western civilization? Ah. Obviously, we have during the Dark Ages. Most people say, well, that's pretty much a low point. Yeah, you know, there are some people trying to say oh, the Dark Ages weren't so bad. Come on. But it's, yeah, yeah, it's, they were obviously much worse than the Roman Empire by most standards. It's not... Um, I, I, I suppose I'm going to sound prejudiced in favor of the objects of my study. But if the, if the question is, would you have rather lived in the 2nd century C or the 9th century C? You know, frankly, for me at least, the choice is clear. Sure. Uh, and that's true both as a matter of culture, um, but it's also true. Um, it's also true about uh, basic forms of the basic material conditions of existence. There's some reason to think that the distribution of nutrition in the Roman Empire was uh, that people were taller and better fed. Yeah. Um, so that's a non-trivial thing. Coming back to empiricism, um, yeah, sure. I'll go out on a limb. I think, um, essentially, um, something like what we might call um, Roman pagan forms of Roman a Roman pagan epistemology uh, was more conducive to what we might think of as um, uh, rationality than were something like what we might think of as the the. Christian Greek synthesis that emerges yeah. instead. Sure. All right, so let's do a change of pace to the economics of the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. As you point out, the Roman Empire brought countless economic benefits to provinces which it subjugated, ranging from a boost in trade to building roads, aqueducts, new cities, even. 
Yet, according to the widely used data of prolific economic historian Angus Madison, the GDP per capita of most modern-day countries formerly within the Roman Empire, such as France, Spain, Switzerland, England, Portugal, or Israel, that this was about the same under Roman rules in 1000 AD, with only a handful of countries, Italy, Greece, and Egypt, were far richer. Does this tell us anything important about the economic benefits of Roman rule? Ah, uh, so, um, I mean, the contrast with the year 1000, I think, is a, is a mistake. Um, and I, I think slightly different indices should be brought to bear. Um, I do think there were economic benefits and that they were widespread. Yeah. Um, uh, it's nevertheless true that um, it, the, the Roman Empire um, had, relatively speaking, uh, poor infrastructure for the distribution of goods. I mean, better than many times subsequently, but it wasn't fantastic. A lot of things there was no refrigeration. Um, they had wheels without ball bearings and so on and so on. The roads were the roads were good, but not there were not a huge number of them. So it's, it's a, there were some serious incapacities, and it was for a period at least, right? What we might call a command economy. A great deal of wealth was intended to circulate to central Italy because that's where Rome itself was. Yeah, um, and we shouldn't ignore that. I don't. I don't think we should ignore that. That said. Rather than speak, right, per capita GDP in a pre-modern technological regime grows slowly. Yeah. Right? You, 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 uh, to, to, to produce greater per capita GDP, you need really substantial productivity gains. And that doesn't occur very widely in the ancient world. I mean, every, there, are, there are inventions that change things. Yeah. The water wheel and so on that clearly produce substantial economic benefits. But they're relatively few. I think what you should look at, look to instead is, um, is, uh, uh, are two things. One, an overall increase in the size of the population. Yeah. And there's some reason to think that the population of the Mediterranean basin increases from, let us say, between 25 and 30 to between 45 and 50 million people. Huge um, increase. Huge increase. A huge increase. increase. Yeah. Yeah. A huge increase. If, so, if anything like that, on, on, you know, as I say, you know, there are reasons to believe this. And um, as a secondary matter, that um, there is, as I alluded to earlier, some reason to believe that um, overall health yeah. increase. So that um, um, given, given what we think we can know about the conditions of Roman economic production, I think uh, we, should, we should not look to purely economic indicators of the health of the empire, but rather focus on something like demographic indicators. Mm -hmm. um, there were more people, and they were generally more healthy. Um, and more people and more healthy is also significant, even if they were not necessarily per person wealthier. Sir. So what non-Italian parts of the Roman Empire had the highest standard of living? If I had a time machine and you forced me to go back in time, and I had to choose the province, that's what you recommend. <laughs> um... Asia, Baitica, or Africa Proconsulars. Alright. We, so, uh, we should modern. Uh, <laughs> right. Yes, yes. So, Asia, the province of Asia is southwest Turkey. Okay. Africa Proconsularis is the area around uh, Carthage. So, um, Tunis. Uh, yeah. um, and uh, Baitica would be southeast Spain. Right. And they, um, they had a high population density. They had a great deal of trade and uh, manufacture. They had increasing population, increasing urbanism, and 
in general, they were far removed from the sites of um, of military incursion in the third and fourth centuries. So they tended to flourish over a very long period. And uh, I assume there were fewer rebellions in these flourishing areas than in neighboring poor ones, correct? Yes, they uh, these they also I mean among other things the Europe hard to suss out cause, but yes, yeah. perhaps because they were they were wealthy, there was a. They were, they were relatively politically stable. Absolutely. Higher economic growth generally calms people yeah. down. True. Yeah. Yep. How urbanized was the Roman Empire? Were Roman subjects living in cities more appreciative of the benefits which imperial rule brought to them? The Roman Empire was heavily urbanized and became more so. Certainly for an ancient civilization, yeah. that's true. Still, nothing compared to the standards of today. Right? Yeah. Most the, um, countries. Uh, absolutely, it was, it was heavily urbanized, and if you... And there, there are people who you know, produce these kinds of charts. You can um, study the proliferation of... Uh, of uh, the prob- proliferation of cities with um, monumentalized urban core, or let us say, the proliferation of settlements. We can use a a neutral term, the proliferation of settlement, monumentalized urban core, um, uh, running water, and so forth. At least running water brought from exterior sources into the center of town. All of the by by any number of measures, the Roman Empire becomes more heavily urbanized. Are they um, more pleased with the Romans? Well, the answer is almost undoubtedly so. The, but I, I, I should call it. So the, the quick answer. A quick answer is that, um, uh, yes, we see a number of. I don't know what you would call them. Provincial. We saw. We see a certain amount of provincial unrest. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tend to center in cities. Sure. Um, but provincial unrest in itself tends to die out. Um, it's one of the more interesting phenomena. I mean, so you know, uh, you made reference earlier. To the sheer number of emperors who die through assassination, yeah, and it's a lot. But um, but they don't tend to die in war with foreigners, and they don't tend to die in war with rebellious subjects. Yeah. Um, well, some of that you could just say like they're just hiding behind their massive armies. Uh, well, no. I know that there are some Roman emperors who certainly did that, but yes, yes. Um, but the chief danger to Roman emperors was other people who wanted to be Roman emperors. Yeah, well, it was and like elite, rather Roman elite specifically, right? Sure. These people yeah. would almost always be in the cities. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it was, um, but it, sp- thinking about the figure of the emperor specifically and dangers to the upper echelons of Roman power, it was competition among other people who were already at the top. Yeah. Um, it was not uh, some random Syrian or some some random citizen of Bulgaria who said, I'm going to lead a revolt, and actually ever successfully got anywhere near the Roman Emperor. Um, The dangers to the Roman Emperor himself came from other people who themselves had the chance of being Emperor. Alright, so just some last funds and air questions about Roman Emperors. Mm -hmm. What was so good about the five good Emperors, and were they actually by their building loyalty among their Roman subjects, in your opinion? Um... Yeah, the five emperors probably really were good. It'd be totally. I think. I think one would have to say, uh-huh. um, good for who? <laughs> uh, actually, 
probably something close to everybody. Right? Really? I mean, yeah. Okay. The, you know, um, the, the outlier here would probably be Trajan, yeah. who undertook some nutty wars of choice yeah. um, and conquered territories which eventually the Romans had to give up in order to create more stable territorial units of rule again. Well, this is um, the biggest threat an empire ever gets, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, if you consider that a plus, then yeah. <laughs> you know we're tough we're, Yeah, we're no longer you know we're no we're no we no longer dwell in states that aspire to expand. So it's who it's hard. <laughs> who are we to say? Yeah. Um, but the the you know. The, Two things happen under these emperors, and here, and the reason I single out Trajan as an exception because of this expenditure is that you know um, they um, the Roman Empire is a kind of economic engine, like any big human society generates a certain amount of wealth and a certain amount of surplus, um, and uh, the the Roman Empire in itself, by conquering everyone else, cuts down on the frictions, costs, and losses associated with what we might think of as micro-regional competition and warfare in the Roman world. And by choosing not to conduct, or in general not to conduct, large-scale foreign wars outside the empire, you know, frankly, among other things, a certain amount of economic surplus that would have just been siphoned away and dumped into military expenditure, yeah. um, is just ex negativo allowed to circulate within? So the great bulk of this, you know, population growth that I described earlier essentially is visible between, let us say, the early first century BC, uh, CE and the reign of Marcus Aurelius. So it's 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 that period, and in particular, perhaps the period that goes from, let us say, something like sixty to one sixty or seventy to one seventy that produces this growth. Um, and then the second thing is that, um, you know, um, for various reasons, and here we get back to the kind of mysterious goodness of the good emperors, um, they're, you know, substantial forms of, let us say, corruption or distortionate political gain um, seem to, you know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of it. I mean, the, the reason why certain, the reason why there's general economic flourishing is obviously because there's not some particular class or region that is sucking up all the wealth. Um, and the major interruption of that of that cycle of goodness, of let us say flourishing, comes about, yeah, sure. You could say it's because the next emperor in line is the jackass Commodus, who does seem to have been a you know, just a a, a, really, a really horrible human being. Yeah, um, but also, you know, that they they began to fight these wars on the Danube, in part provoked by the, the foreign policy excesses of, of Trajan. Um, um, and, uh, uh, and of course, there's the, the, the so-called Antonine Plague. So, I made reference earlier to, to, to the, and in part, in part, prompted by you, to the costs of, uh, of disease. And um, the combination of warfare, which takes money and manpower, and of disease at the end of the reigns, at the end of this period of five good emperors, um, that produced a kind of shock to the economic and military stability of the regime that it took a, a while to recover from. So who was the most successful Roman emperor besides Augustus, and why? 
the, I mean, the obvious answer is probably Constantine, except I don't want to say it because he was a bloodthirsty monster. Um, I'd say, I'll, say, I'll, say I'll say Hadrian. I'll say Hadrian. Hadrian ruled for a long time. Um, uh, the in a variety of important ways. Materially, the empire seems to have flourished. He achieved a number of quite notable policy successes in areas that I think would be generally admired in the modern world, uh, stabilizing um, and reversing poli- you know, stabilizing things like rules in respect of, um, of families and so on. Um, and um, he was exceptionally widely commemorated at a local level. Um, that is, there's just an enormous amount of evidence that the people on the ground scattered all over the empire appreciated him as emperor and finally continued to do things like celebrate his birthday as a holiday. Yeah. Most Roman emperors in the so-called, with our evidence for so-called imperial cult, yeah, sure, you know, for so long as, I don't know, name your emperor, for so long as Antoninus Pius was emperor, you went off and you lit a candle in church on the birthday of Antoninus Pius. And the day he died, he just stopped. They're like, who cares? No one actually believes these people are gods. And they, the major exceptions are Augustus and Hadrian, whose birthday seemed to have been celebrated as holidays long after they were dead in specific regions. They really did make an impression. That's a pretty good sign. Yeah. All right, so just one last question before we end. So what's next for you, Professor? Any important upcoming works? I'm working on two things. One is kind of technical, but for me, fun. And it's about um, uh, Latin as a language of the law. Yeah. About how how Latin changes in order to become a language of the law, and in particular, the law of an empire. I can describe what I mean, but it's... Anyway, it's fun. <laughs> but and, and making trying to persuade other people to be interested in this will be a kind of interesting challenge. And the other is a book about um, the form of the Roman state under the Republic. So stepping back, stepping back from the kind of chronological period in which I now work and trying to figure out um, how essentially a set of governmental institutions that become the empire themselves came into being in the late Republic. Um, so much of the energy of scholarship on the late Republic has been devoted to things like history of warfare, history of Roman politics, history of civil wars, that I think, you know, less attention has been paid than might have been to how a kind of the apparatus of government came into being. You know, the, it wasn't invented entirely under Augustus. I think there's a there's more attention now than there used to be towards understanding, in essence, the pre-imperial roots of what become imperial government. This would be a contribution to that kind of literature. All right. Well, thanks to our listeners, and many thanks to you, Professor Ando, for taking the time to be with us here today. If you enjoyed this installment of the History Twins podcast, there will be another next uh, month with fellow Chicago professor Stephen Pincus, which, as always, will be available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm Tristan Kaplan. I'm Aiden Kaplan. And together we are the History Twins.